today, um, because this is the church that's founded on dialogue, um, what I wanted to do as we continue to walk through Genesis is really address this question of how do we interact with God? How do we have a dialogue with God? And in the past, what I've been doing um, and what I did last Sunday was kind of start off with some, some questions. And what I, um, I want to kind of confess is that sometimes when I frame a sermon with a question, I don't realize till afterwards, maybe that wasn't the best question. Okay, so last Sunday, um, the question I asked was, what's an appropriate emotional response to God? That was my question. What's an appropriate emotional response to God? And then I realized later, you know what? That might not be that helpful of a question. In fact, because oftentimes the, the questions we ask frame our picture of God. And I realized later, you know, um, maybe, maybe that leads us to thinking about what's appropriate. And thinking about what's appropriate may not be the best lens with which we want to approach God. So could I, could I just say that as part of walking in community and having conversations together, we want to work towards asking better questions and that it is okay and acceptable to um, maybe not start out with the most helpful question. Um, so like people like to say, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And, and I would say that's actually not true. I think there are stupid questions, but sometimes you have to ask stupid questions to get to the better ones, okay? And I want to create space for us to ask stupid questions um, and then find better ones or smarter ones to be able to ask. I see some of you laughing. Yeah, there is such thing as a stupid question, um, but it's okay to ask them. Okay, because we will work towards we will work towards better questions, and that's part of what being in dialogue and having a series of conversations is about. Um, and so that's where that's how we're going to encounter this text. Um, we're going to ask different questions of it, and we may ask stupid questions as a result. But we're just going to keep figuring out how to ask better questions of the text. Um, and this is one of the more confusing passages because this passage isn't just about interactions we have between each other. This isn't about horizontal dialogue. This is about vertical dialogue. That is, how do we talk with God? What does it mean to have a conversation with God? And as Christians, we call that prayer. Um, and what I'd like to propose is that oftentimes the way that we pray, in fact, I would argue the way that we pray is more important than the frequency of our prayer. Oftentimes in Christian circles, we, when someone asks, like, how's your prayer life? Uh, Christians, including me, we feel very guilty because we don't pray enough as if frequency is what God values. But if you look at the New Testament, uh, for example, the Lord's Prayer and the context of the Lord's Prayer, um, what Jesus emphasizes isn't the frequency or amount of time you spend praying. It is the quality or, or the, the kind of faith you invest in that prayer. And so I, I want you to keep that in mind as we, as we look at this text today. Uh, which is challenging and confusing and disturbing, but does have implications on how we have dialogue with God and how we interact with them. And frankly, how we partner with God or how, another way to put it, how God partners with us. Okay. So I'm going to be reading from Genesis 18 and I'm going to be covering the second half of this chapter, starting with verse 16. <clears throat> we have the slides up here. I'm going to read from 16 to 21. All right. Then the men set out from there. And they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall, shall, shall surely, that, did I get the right? Shall surely, yeah. Shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him 
to keep the way of the Lord by doing just by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So we're going to stop here. I'm going to talk through these passages. All of Genesis 18 is about this encounter God has and two other angels, presumably. These, these three men have with Abraham and Sarah. And last week, we talked about the encounter, the, the initial part of the visit, because this is all part of the same encounter. And last week, we talked about uh, these three men visiting Abraham and Sarah and how Abraham demonstrates hospitality. Um, and then these three men engage with Sarah. And they do so indirectly. So what happens is, and I'll, I'll just recap, uh, Sarah is not addressed directly, but she's inside of the tent listening in, overhearing the conversation. And God always communicates in the context of his covenant. And God has made the sacred promise to Abraham and Sarah, who are, what, I think 98, Abraham's 98 years old or so, um, when this uh, encounter happens. And uh, Sarah, I think, is in her 80s. And she's, she's been barren. She does not have children. Um, and so the absurdity of the situation is God has promised to Abraham that he will have a physical descendant through his wife, that Sarah in the next year um, will have a child, will bear a child. And Sarah laughs as, she is, as that prophecy is said and she overhears it. And what I find fascinating and important about the way God interacts is he, number one, he hears Sarah laugh to herself and then says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And then Sarah denies it and says, no, I didn't laugh. And then God says, yes, you did. And I think it's just a funny argument that happens. But the, the thing that I would observe to you is that God enjoys, the, or I, I shouldn't say observe, the thing I would I'll make an interpretation of is that God enjoys engaging with us and he even enjoys engaging with people who are adjacent to God's promise because the promise was made to Abraham, and yet God is interested in engaging Sarah. <clears throat> and so as we get into uh, this section, starting in verse 16, uh, uh, these three men are no longer engaging with Sarah. They have, moved, they have moved on, and they're heading towards Sodom, and now they are engaging Abraham. Now they're talking with him. So they first engage, they first have this conversation. It's a strange conversation, right? They kind of argue with Sarah and now they're, they're arguing or now they're going to have a discussion with Abraham. And this is what is said. As these men set on from there, and I think there's three of them, they look towards Sodom and then the Lord says, and this is a weird, this is a weird uh, exchange because the Lord, the God, God speaks to himself. God talks to himself and God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And this is one of those strange things that whenever, you know, someone is talking to themselves, hey, should I tell you what I'm about to, <laughs> they're debating whether they should tell you something. They're pretty much saying they're going to tell you, right? You can't really say that. I hope no one's ever done that where you said, hey, I'm not sure if I should tell you this. And then you choose not to tell that person. I hope you don't do that. Um, because when you are debating whether you should tell someone, you've basically decided that you are going to, right? And so God is questioning whether he should hide from Abraham what he's about to do. And essentially he's saying, I'm not going to hide right? I'm not going to hide um, what I'm, what I'm going to do because I want Abraham to know. And then this is the important part, the because seeing, this is verse 18, 
that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. Okay, so what do we what would we say about this? Number one, that God initiates prayer. That's the meaning of this. God always is the one who initiates prayer. And our response in prayer, the first response we have in prayer is and always first and foremost to listen. Because if God speaks first, then it is our, our role to listen. And we had a fantastic prayer time yesterday morning. I wasn't able to be in the, in the entire thing, but Amy um, led us in an exercise where we listened to scripture being read. And we listened to the same scripture being read repeatedly because the idea is we are notoriously bad listeners. We are really bad at listening to God. And when we make time to be silent and put ourselves in a posture to listen um, and listen repeatedly, we have a better chance of being able to hear God. And so prayer always begins with God speaking and he speaks according to his promises. And that is the beginning of prayer. That is the beginning of how we interact with God. That is the beginning of how Sarah interacts with him. And that is also how Abraham interacts. It starts with something God says. The second thing I would notice is that there's references in here to justice and righteousness. So if you look in the second part of, the, of what I read, this is in verse 19, it says, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him um, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And I think there's a lot of ways to define righteousness and justice. In fact, justice, I would say, is a, is a kind of a buzzword, not kind of. It is a buzzword today. And so what I would like to do, and I think is really important as we read the scriptures, is to be careful to import our own understanding of a word, our own modern understanding of a word, and allow scripture to define the meaning of a word. And so the first way you would look at what a definition of righteousness and justice is, is from the book that you are reading. So from the book of Genesis, we want to understand what righteousness and justice then, and then it kind of radiates outward, right? And But you give greatest priority to the immediate context of righteousness and justice. Now, justice, I don't think appears um, in Genesis yet. It hasn't appeared in Genesis yet, but righteousness has, that term has, and it, and it appears in three places. The most recent one is Genesis 15, 6, where it says, and Abram, which, who is Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So I would say the first way I would define righteousness, according to what Genesis says, is it, some, it has something to do with how we relate to God. So when, when uh, God says, you know, he needs to walk in righteousness, it means to walk with God. It means to, to have a certain kind of relation, to have a right relationship with him. And that's further, further reinforced by Genesis 6, 9, and 7, 1. And that's in reference to Noah. And 6.9 says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then it says, Noah walked with God. And then in 7.1, it says, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So, it, so there's a couple of things going on there. Number one, righteousness, there is some relativity to it because he's righteous relative to the rest of his generation. The second thing in defining righteousness, it says Noah walked with God. So that gives a little bit of context to what righteousness means. It has to do with this relationship with God. So let, let's, let's, let's start with that as a working definition that righteousness has something to do about being in right relationship with God. The second term justice, it's a little more difficult because you don't have as many references in Genesis, 
But again, remember, Genesis is not a standalone book. Genesis was written in the context of the Pentateuch, and if we, which is the first five books of the Bible. And so if we look forward, this idea of justice comes into a greater clarity if we recognize that it's building towards the giving of the law. And the law is a way of understanding justice, of what is good and what is right, and it has something to do with rule. And we'll talk more about justice as we go through it. But the idea here is that uh, what Sodom and Gomorrah represent is the antithesis, is the opposite of righteousness and justice. These two cities, um, there is an outcry against. And so there's something about these cities that is unjust and also unrighteous. Okay. And uh, I was listening to um, a message by Tim Keller about this. And, and what's, what's fascinating is he references uh, Robert Alter, who was a Jewish scholar and writes about the idea of outcry. Okay, because there's an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm not, I'm going to read a little bit from Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. I won't have it up. Um, I won't have it up on the screen. But Ezekiel uh, 16, 49 through 50 talks about the guilt of your sister Sodom, that they had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So there's an aspect of injustice here that is related to arrogance that is related to um, excess, to luxury, and also to not aiding the poor and needy. So there's an oppression that's happening that is related to uh, this unrighteousness and injustice. And so when we think about that term outcry, that is probably the cries of the oppressed that have reached God. And so God is responding to this outcry because not only does God speak, but he also listens and he has heard of this outcry of injustice. And God is responding to that outcry, and he's also involving Abraham in that. Okay, so let's keep reading. Let's go through, let's do um, Genesis 18, 22, toward the, to the end of this chapter. And 22 says, so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the, Lord, for the sake of 20, 
I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. So a couple things I want I would like to say about the scriptures. First of all, um, God is not afraid to allow lots of repetition, right? There's all kinds of repetition here and it's almost, it's almost annoying, right? It's almost annoying. And in fact, Abraham, I would argue is from, a, from our perspective, kind of annoying in what he's doing. And yet there's, there's a lot of precious lessons that are going on with this. Um, the second thing I would notice is that, oh, I want to point out is that it says, okay, it said toward the beginning, it says, so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. This is verse 22, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Okay. So who is standing there? And if you look ahead to Genesis 19, there are two men that visit Sodom, but there were three men that started out in Genesis 18. So what I'm going to guess, and this is, this is speculation, but I'm going to guess that one of the men stood there um, that stayed, stuck around and that's God. There is a God man, if you will, who stayed there um, and, and, and stood before Abraham. Okay. And they continue this conversation and it's intimate um, because it says in, um, in 23, then Abraham drew near. Okay. Abraham draws near. So it's like he, he comes close and begins to discuss with God, mano a mano, like one-on-one. There's no more three people. There's no more three guys. It's just Abraham. And then Abraham makes this bold request. And he says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And he asks, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, right? Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And so let me, let me just make an obs another observation because Genesis 19 is about Lot, okay? And, and how Lot and his family are rescued out of Sodom. Um, Lot is not mentioned in this interchange, okay? That, so that's a fact, that's an observation. And the way that I would interpret that is I believe Abraham was certainly thinking about Lot, okay? As he's talking about Sodom, as he's pleading for Sodom, but he never mentions it. That's a fact. He never mentions it. So there's, there may be some things going on here about his concern for Lot. And yet what's interesting is he never mentions it. He never mentions, could you please save my nephew? Lot is his nephew. Would you please save my nephew and his family? Abraham doesn't mention it. But Abraham does introduce this interesting concept where he is appealing to God's sense of justice. And he's saying, isn't there some value of righteous people that outweighs the evil of unrighteous people. Aren't righteous people valuable enough that you would not sweep away an entire city of unrighteous people because there are 50, because there are 50 righteous people. And so I, I think this is worth, uh, again, thinking more about that this language of justice and righteousness are coming back. Okay, it's a it's a big emphasis here in this passage because God says you, He needs to do um, justice and righteousness, and now Abraham is appealing to God on the basis of justice and righteousness. And there's a couple ways to think about this. 
I want to, I want to think about a couple ways to address this. The first is um, whenever we encounter words um, to think about, again, their, their meaning in the past. And so I want to go back to, you know, I've mentioned how I've listened to Jordan Peterson's lectures about Genesis. And one of the ideas he has is this idea of covenant and how Abraham is a new Noah. Or uh, Noah is a kind of Abraham. And so the what God was doing with covenant, especially given what he was doing with um, with Abraham, is he's with Noah, is he was saving the world through Noah. And God was allowing justice to happen through one person. And God is now allowing justice to happen through this one person, Abraham. So God was rescuing the world through Noah. And now as God is rescuing this world through Abraham. And so this justice and righteousness is a kind of delegated authority that God has given to, uh, to Abraham. He's saying, I want you to rule with me. Okay. Because in the very beginning where um, God says, Humanity is going to rule together. Humanity has the delegated authority. This is Genesis 1. Humanity is going to rule together with God to have dominion, to be fruitful and multiply. And that's the original intent for mankind. And so perhaps we can see justice and righteousness when God is talking about this. He's saying, look, Abraham is going to be a kind of co-creator with me to bring justice and righteousness. And the way that happens is for God not to hide, for God to reveal his plan for this world and invite Abraham to speak into it. Because the people you have a partnership with, you don't hide anything, right? You share your plans with those who are partners together with you. And so God is inviting Abraham, I'm going to share my plan with you, and I want you to speak into it. And I want you to speak into it in a way that, uh, that delegates authority to you, okay? Because I want you to speak of it in terms of righteousness and justice because that's what I'm about. That's what this whole plan is about. And so what, uh, what Abraham is asking is, could you see the value of those who are righteous? And that impacts even those who are unrighteous. Okay, one sec. Okay, sorry about that. Um, so let me give you let me give you an example of, of one uh, one way I've I've been thinking about this. Okay, first off, you know we're kind of a we are an individualistic culture, and what that means is, um, okay, I need to. All right, just just a second. Sorry, Zoom problems. All right. <laughs> okay, let's go back. So we we've we've had people over to our house. Um, before COVID, right? We had people over. And as people left our house at night, um, what would happen is um, I would always be a little bit embarrassed because we don't have a security light in our in our front, okay? Or it's just, it doesn't, it's not very bright. And so I'd always be embarrassed because as people leave, there's a crack in our sidewalk as they're leaving the door. And if it's dark, you trip over that crack in our sidewalk, okay? Um, and then it's been a little different because now in COVID, people have only come to our backyard. We're not having people in the house, right? And as people come into our backyard, they go through the side gate. Um, and then I've also been concerned as people leave the house um, that they don't have enough light to be able to see. Okay, they don't have enough light to be able to see. Um, but I realize as I walk people out the door, at the, out the side gate, if they just walk far enough, okay, if they walk far enough, what'll happen is the motion sensor of our neighbor's security light 
And our neighbors have like this super, super bright security light. It is like annoyingly bright. If they just walk far enough on our driveway, it will trigger the motion sensor of the adjacent uh, security light, okay? And so we, um, our house is in darkness, but our house benefits from the light of our neighbor. And so what Abraham is saying is, is there a light bright enough? Do the righteous shine a light bright enough that it would cover and provide light, provide safety, okay, enough for not just the neighboring houses and our, and our neighbor's house, our, our, Andrew and Lynn have the brightest security light, right? It, it probably illuminates, you know, three or four driveways around, including the one across the street, okay? But what Abraham is arguing from the 50 to the 45, to the 40, to the 30, to the 20, to the 10, he's saying, is there a light bright enough from the righteous people in Sodom that it would illuminate the darkness of the rest of the city? That's what he's arguing. Is there a value and a brightness from their righteousness that would cover over the darkness of others? And so uh, that's the question. And the invitation is, and the implication as we move forward into the New Testament is that God is inviting us to co-partner with him, to partner with him, to allow the light of the righteousness to shine forward. And what happens here, and Keller talks about this, is we don't quite get to one righteous person. In our life group, we talked about this. Someone in our life group was like, how come Abraham doesn't get to one person? Can you have one righteous person whose light outshines and is able to save an entire city? And we don't quite get there. But that's the direction we're going here. Because Abraham is acting as a priest and he's beseeching those, he's beseeching God to allow the, the righteousness of the few to save the unrighteousness of the many, of the many. And what where we are headed is towards this idea of the new covenant, to the one in Jesus, whom in the righteousness of one person can save the unrighteousness of the many. Because he is this great high priest whose light not only illuminates the darkness of a city, but also of a nation and of the entire world. And Jesus is that high priest whom is beseeching and pleading with God on our behalf, not just for Sodom, but for the rest of this world. And I would like to go further in that we are are co-partners or or co-creators with God And that because of this high priest, because of what Jesus has done, we are being welcomed into the family business, okay? We are also beacons of this light, and we are also high, we are also priests. Maybe not the high priest, but we are also priests, where we now have the privilege to intercede on behalf of this world so that the light of Jesus would shine forth. And how do I know that? Well, yesterday in our our prayer time, um, we were praying through the Lord's Prayer which is a New Testament prayer and Jesus teaching us how to pray. And in that Lord's prayer, the second part of it, it says, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when you pray that prayer, you are praying alongside God to allow his his will to be done. The same way it's done in heaven for it to be done on earth. 
You are interceding. You're invited into the same ministry that Abraham had. God has gifted us through his spirit to have that same delegated authority to live out the promises of his covenant so that this light would shine forth. And we are given that through his spirit. First Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so how do we do this? What, what does it mean then to pray like this, to partner with God in this? Well, the first thing is I want you to notice, and this is from the Lord's prayer. This is not so much from Abraham's prayer, but this is from the Lord's prayer is that when you pray, could I suggest you use the term we, right? I think that's one of our instructions today that we pray from a standpoint of we. The Lord's prayer is actually written uh, first person plural. It's written as a we, because this new covenant in Christ is given to a new people. It's not just given to you as an individual, it's given as a people. And so even when you confess sin as a people, it's not done as an individual. It is done as a group. When we, when we pray for, um, when, we, when we confess sin, we often only want to confess our individual sins. But just as we are righteous by association, we are also guilty by association. So when you say we, you're inviting God to be able to say, hey, I participate in this culture. I participate in this nation. I participate in the sins of this nation and this neighborhood. Even though you may as an individual not do those exact same acts or have the same behavior because we also benefit on the other side because of our association with Jesus and the righteousness of another person. The second thing I would um, ask you to pray um, in light of um, is to pray in the character of God, okay? Is to appeal in God's name. And oftentimes when we pray, we use in Jesus' name, it's just kind of like a formula, right? It's something you say at the end of a prayer. It's a formality, right? It, we, don't, we don't actually mean what it, what it says to pray in God's name. And you'll notice that Abraham, when he prays, he says, shall the judge of the earth do what is just? Shall the judge of the earth? And he is praying in God's name, not because he uses a specific term of God, but he is describing and praying alongside God's character, works, and reputation. And someone in our, our group, our life group this week was, was very honest, and I appreciate this. And this person said, hey, I, I don't know if God really wants to know what I think because I, I pray selfishly. And I, I, I super, I love that kind of honesty. I pray selfishly too. But here's the thing. You, you, can't told, you can't really pray selfishly when you're praying in someone's name. When you're praying along someone's character, works, and reputation, you're not going to pray selfishly, right? It's, it's not possible because you're going to pray in terms of what is important to that person. You're praying according to, according to their character, works, and reputation. And that's what Abraham does is he's praying according to the promises and, and revealed character of God that he has experienced and has been said by God. He repeats that back to God. And so when you pray, when you pray in God's name, it means to appeal to his character, works, and reputation. And frankly, if that's new to you, could I ask you, your prayer could be, God, would you show me your name? Would you show me your character, works, and reputation? And then lastly, as you pray in intercession, and we're going to pray in intercession for our city, for our neighborhoods, for this nation even, would you pray that people would experience the righteousness and justice of the sun, that people would experience the light? 
and be able to come out of darkness. And that is not a, a prayer for other people. That's a prayer for us, that we would experience light and come out of darkness. So that's our, that's our calling. We have been privileged to be co-creators with God, invited into the family business alongside Jesus, who was our great high priest. And we've been given the privilege to intercede on behalf of others and to intercede for ourselves. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your love for us and for your um, incredible uh, manner in which you work alongside us, that you love us enough to make us co-creators with you, that you have given us your spirit so that we could intercede on behalf of others, on behalf of this world. And thank you that we have a high priest who not only models this, but empowers this, that he is the light of the one righteous person who saves the unrighteous. And that through him, we are saved because of our association by faith with him. God, thank you that you want to talk with us and interact with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.